Hello, listeners, and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. Now, if you listened to last week's podcast, you know that we've launched a slightly different format where we'll be alternating between higher education and K 12 themes. This week, we take you to Auckland, New Zealand. A few months back, our own Betsy Corcoran traveled there where she sat down with Pete Hall. At the moment, Pete is the newest principal of the Taupaki School, but he also has a background in entrepreneurship and teaching. Betsy spoke with Pete about New Zealand schools and discovered a few unique facts, including the reality that standards aren't the be-all, end-all of schooling in New Zealand. I know, crazy, right? In fact, the schools place a huge emphasis on bringing the community into the running of programs like makerspaces, and it offers students a huge sense of autonomy. And I'm going to be honest, you don't always see that in standards-obsessed systems. We'll get to that in a moment, right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by EdSurge Concierge. Are you a K-12 administrator who is looking to have more confidence in your ed tech decisions? Concierge is a free service designed to find EdTech tools aligned to your goals. Sign up now on edsurge.com slash concierge. Okay, listeners, ready to take a trip to New Zealand? Here's EdSurge's own Betsy Corcoran. And Pete has been sharing with me some of his thoughts on education in New Zealand, taking me to visit some schools, and we've done a interview on his podcast called Point of Learning, which I highly recommend. So now we've retaliated. We have Pete here. Um, So first off, Pete, welcome to the EdSearch podcast. Good to be here. (laughs) Even if it is in Auckland today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And we're very excited to be here. New Zealand, on the one hand, faces some of the same education issues that we talk about in the United States, and yet you have some amazing things, some amazing differences, and some amazing features of your schools. And Pete and I have been talking about how many incredible schools there are in New Zealand, and I think you have a list of 50 or maybe 100 or 1,000, maybe all 2,500 schools if I give him a chance. But we're just going to talk about a couple of schools. Uh, we've had a chance to visit two. And so, Pete, I'd love to have you tell me a little bit about, share a little bit about Taupeki, which is a small country school that we visited yesterday, and what's particularly special about what Taupeki's been doing. I think most people who learn about Taupeki see the amazing stuff they're doing around uh, maker spaces, bringing the community in, getting kids involved from from other schools. They'll bus in kids from other schools to come in and, and use their amazing resources. I mean, it's a um, little it's a little school. It's out in this gorgeous countryside. Yeah. Um, it's got about three hundred and fifty kids, yeah. right? And it's it's the lower grades, yeah. like kindergarten through about fifth or sixth. So it'll be yeah, what we call. Uh, new entrant through to what we call intermediate level, so year seven and eight as well. So what we call a full primary. Right. Yeah. And it's, I think what they're doing there is is quite extraordinary because they've made a point of making sure that their students are learning and meeting you know, the national standard. And we heard Stephen talking about that tension that they had as a community around taking on national standards and what that necessarily meant and now they certainly make sure they meet those standards but they don't say that those standards are the be-all and end-all of what they're doing in their school they're building things they're they're 
interacting with their community, they're doing things that matter, they're engaging in inquiries. And I think it's exciting. And we, we saw the rubbish bin that was being made. The tell, kids are remind us, you know. tell, tell our listeners about the rubbish bin because, uh, so we were there yesterday, we talked to the principal, whose name is Stephen... Stephen Lethbridge, yeah. Stephen Lethbridge. And he showed us this very cool rubbish bin. And it's made out of plywood, I think. It's, it's painted in amazing colors. And it was the brainchild of, of a group of students that thought, what if we had a rubbish bin that just begged people to put rubbish in it and asked people to do that and responded when you put rubbish in it. It's fantastic. And, and so there it is, and it's, it, hasn't quite, it hasn't quite shipped yet. It's not out in the, in, the play, in the playground yet, but they're recording their voices and their programming. I believe they've got an Arduino running in there to see if they can get some LED lights, give some feedback, and get, get that going. And it's just an example of one small group of students who have a great idea, and then, sure, you can build it out of wood, we can do it any, you know, any way you like, and then actually how are we going to improve it, how are we going to, um, to work on it, and then what's it going to, once it's out in the yard, what's going to happen next, you know, what that, what's that going to be like? And it was fascinating to hear Stephen point out that schools in New Zealand have a lot of freedom. If their kids are meeting the national standards, they have a lot of freedom to decide how they're going to meet the national standards. But what he's done that's so magical there is really work with the community to make sure that they're co-constructing how they're going to get there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think when he was talking about that process of him being the steward for the community and being just the person who was there to listen and then amplify and make real their idea of what education was going to be for their students. And I think he did a beautiful job of, of talking about what it is to listen to a community about the needs of their students in a way that didn't need to be muddied with you know, the idea of something like, what does that mean for national standards? Because he built that trust of, yes, that's something we do. And what is it that you really value? And what is it that, that you want to see? And when your student leaves Topaki, who do you want them to be? How do you want them to be in the world? Uh, can we recognize them on the other side of the school gate when they've moved on to their next school? What are the conversations we're going to have with the schools that we feed to when they say, ah, oh, Topaki student? Brilliant. Some it, yeah. it was really brilliant. I, I, was, uh, I was ready to sign up, and uh, <laughs> if I had kids who were that age, I'd want them there. Now, tell me about another school. There's another school that we didn't have a chance to visit today um, called Point England, yeah. and it deals with a very special population here in New Zealand. Tell me a little bit about that school and how they have been working with the community of students they have. So I think what, what Point England done very, very well as they have made an absolute relentless point of bringing their community in as part of their journey. And describe the community. So in, in New Zealand we have decile ratings, so a decile 10 would be a feeder area to that school that's particularly wealthy. Uh, and for Point England School they're a decile 1 school, so it means a uh, particularly poor area. And that's, you know, I think we have a, a bundle of assumptions that we might make uh, that go along with that. Uh, we think, okay, so what are those needs? We've all got stories in our heads of, of what that might look like and what those challenges might be. And I think what they've done so well is to completely change the model of how communities can be brought in 
and how those decisions can be made and how those students can be empowered and what that might look like. So they have, I think perhaps the, the thin end of that wedge is, is that we can all see, is that they, they run a program where they will provide laptops for students, devices for students, that all of the students can have and take home. And they've always done that. Before they had the laptop program where they were providing leased computers to students, they were doing the same with iPods, they would take home podcasts to listen to in the home, so it's always been part of their philosophy. And now they're doing that with, with laptops, organised at, at scale. What would it be to lease a lot of these and provide them to the community, and then what would that cost per, per week, per term? And I understood uh, from some other conversations I had that when they were thinking about how to set up this leasing program, they really engaged with the community to say, how much are you willing to spend? Yeah. How much can you spend? Will you spend this money? Once again, you're dealing with a really impoverished community, and so um, they they literally went to the community and said, what are you willing to spend? And they said, well, we, we, we can't keep buying all the stationary supplies as well as the computers, so yeah. let us off the hook on stationary. Yeah. And ultimately they came to a price of about, I think, $3.50 a week, right, for leasing these computers, and then after three years they're owned by the kids, I think. And they really are their own devices. They take them home, bring them to school. The other thing they do is they provide Wi-Fi to the community as well. So they, they, they push that out uh, so the community can continue to have access to the same network they were using in, in school as well. So, again, just a, a really great example. And I think the assumption is usually that in poorer communities it can be harder to get parents on board. But actually, you need to know how to plug in. And I think they've made a real point of, of doing that well. Tell me a little bit about the school that you ran, Upper Harbour. Yeah, so Upper Harbour is perhaps a, a similar community to, to Topaki. It's a Desal 10 school, quite a large school, four, four to 500 students. And I think one of the things we tried to do there was consider what would the needs of those students be that we just don't see yet. You know, if we know Give me that, an example. What does that mean? So if you're considering the needs of uh, stressed communities, you can think might be a need to offer breakfast in the morning, you know, just mm-hmm. so that learning can happen. You know. right. That's one example of an obvious need. So what is the obvious need when you're looking at a really well-resourced community? And actually, it's not that obvious, So, which isn't to say there aren't needs. So how do you go about finding out what your community needs, even if you don't, you don't know first off? And so we did a consultation with, with the community and, and led that. And I was, so I was deputy principal there for three years, uh, and the principal... Jeanette Craig has always, I think, done a great job of working with the community to always be listening and always trying to make sure that what we're doing there is meeting a need that the community have really understood. And we, I think, through that process, heard back that resilience was one of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, what is it to have well-resourced uh, families who had quite high expectations of their students and uh, of their children and then found, well, how does that pan out? You can end up with a little more anxiety. It could come across as a bit of sort of fragility. We have huge problems with that in the United States. In Palo Alto, one of the, you know, heart of Silicon Valley, one of the most affluent areas in the country, we've had a string of suicides where the kids have said over and over that they feel under such intense pressure, whether it's from each other, their families, to succeed, that they don't have that kind of resilience. So how did you deal with that? What did you do? That became 
one of the core threads of the, the charter for, for the board. The board really, really wanted to see that, really wanted to see that addressed as well. So Jeanette created a, a resilience team, a team of people who were thinking about resilience across the across the school, released to develop resources, released to to think about how teachers could notice this and address this in class. So what is it to have a, a register of students who you think you just want to have on the radar for having a bit of a concern around resilience. And as soon as you have that in your community as a word, you start to have better conversations. You're not talking about someone who is upset a lot. You're now thinking about a muscle that needs to be developed and who do we need to be to help students develop that muscle and build their resilience. And that's been a lot of fun because actually that's quite hard. <laughs> so, it is. It's very hard. So growth mindset was one of the, one of the things that we, we began working on as well. And they're, and they're considering what is it to, to actually apply a growth mindset as a young person? What is it to apply a growth, a growth mindset as a, as a parent, as a teacher? What is it for us to all be resilient? Uh, and how might we model that for each other in a whole community? And it's just fantastic to see an attention placed on something that might otherwise just fall under the radar. But as soon as you raise it, and as soon as you make it part of what people are talking about in the community, yeah. you can change what you do. That's fabulous. The The fourth school that I want to talk about is the one that we had a chance to visit today. Uh, it's called Hobson's. It's uh, kind of remarkable, you know, to see. You walk in, and honestly, it looks more like a Silicon Valley startup company <laughs> in the best of all possible ways. There, are, There's tremendous open space. There's all these cool toys. Uh, it has um, a very, very open and very innovative feel to it. It's also something interesting. It's called a PPP, right? A private-public partnership Public school. Uh, and they're also inviting in companies. They're inviting in the public. Um, tell us a little bit about what they've learned. I know you, you know the folks there very well. Uh, we had a chance to talk with the uh, deputy principal, Claire Amos, Claire Amos, who is really smart, and uh, and we saw her in action, and we learned that just because it's open doesn't mean <laughs> it's totally open, right? Well, yeah, it was a really it was great to see her in action in a classroom, showing that balance of who do you need to be and how do you need your students to be when they're in an open environment. And I know that it's, a, it's a, a common concern. What will my child do when they're in an open environment? They're easily distracted. The, what, if you, what if they have a choice of Aren't not attending Aren't they just going to watch lessons? YouTube all the time? If they, don't, yeah, if, they, <laughs> if they don't have to attend all of the lessons, won't they just not go? I know that's what I would do when I was at school. And that, that's what I've heard parents talk about when they're concerned about their students moving on to other onto other high schools. And in fact, yeah, right, it's important to say that Hobson's is a high school, yeah. so they're older kids. And, and there was, uh, you know, there was, we saw Claire there saying, no one gets to do that, uh, you know, the fun end of, end of term activity if, if they still had work overdue. You know, that's, that's just a, a line in the sand, can't do it. You know, if you, you've got work to do, you've got to do that work. And they seem to be really listening to Absolutely. her too. I would listen to Claire. <laughs> I don't think I'd mess around with Claire there. <laughs> I think so. I think the other what they've learned at, at Hobsable Point is sort of not only how how might those relationships with industry work, how might those relationships with each other work in an open space, how that works with students in an open space, and how that works with parents who are experiencing this through their children for the first time in their lives. 
This is not like education as we do. So how might that work and then how does that scale? So they're at 350 students now and that's going to continue growing. Uh, and I think Claire was, was really honest about just the extraordinary amount of work involved in creating a responsive environment that provides choice. And I think it's really good that you can hear the stories of people being really honest about that. And I think you've got, you've got Maury Abraham leading that school who came from uh, Opotiki College which was a, a very different environment again. You know, I think there was a Desol one school there and he changed the timetable there and changed the way they were doing that work. And what he's done at uh, what he's done at Hobsonville Point is quite similar, I think, to the way Stephen works at Tokaki, which is enthusiastically lay down a number of exciting things that people might want to, to work towards, but also create vacuums, create spaces where people aren't yet, that invite people to come in and mm -hmm. take on new projects, take on new leadership. We heard Stephen talking about the way he did that with, with one of his teachers and the ideas that he had in his head that he would keep to himself and just think, wouldn't it be great if someone thought someone wanted to lead that? You know? And he doesn't want to be the person who fills that space. And Maury does the same sort of thing. He doesn't want to be the person to fill that space because he knows he's hired great people. In the same way Stephen hires great people, creates vacuums where they might really want to move into and creates exciting places where they're drawn to go. And that's, I think, the way smart leaders lead dedicated and smart teachers by just providing opportunities and providing new places to go and new things to see. And uh, I think they're both doing a, a brilliant job of that. And I think all of those schools are doing it. It's really exciting to see. I think I'm possibly ready to back up and move to New Zealand at this point. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> Come on. Uh, I know that, um, again, New Zealand has 2,500 schools. There are probably 2,500 more stories that we could tell. Anything in particular that you'd feel remiss if we didn't touch on? Yeah, thank you. I think, you know, some of the work I have always wanted to do with the podcast is to raise the voice of schools that aren't in the media, who are doing exceptional work. And I, I would ask that they, and I think Maury Abraham has said this in the podcast I did with him, those schools need to get involved and put themselves out there so they can be part of that conversation. You know, I know that there are so many teachers just doing incredible work in their, in their rooms and so many schools doing incredible work with their communities and I think we need to hear about a few more of them and we need to see a, a little more variety coming through and I, I would love to, to see that and I'd love to, uh, I'd love to see a few of those schools just really putting themselves forward by recognising that if they're doing great work with their community and they're doing great work with their teachers to have great things happen with their students, that's it. That's the magic. Well, I said on your podcast, and I'll echo it again, we love sharing stories of great teachers in great schools. We'd love to have some of the, the teachers and the school leaders in New Zealand share some of your stories. I think you are working at collaboration and in bringing in the community and at raising the voices of people who don't always get heard in ways that we're still trying to figure out in the United States. Sometimes we uh, muff it up. Sometimes we get it right. But we, we could really learn a lot from some of the great models and some of the great schools that we've seen here today. So, so thanks. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for taking me on a great tour. And uh, I really hope that we hear from some New Zealand teachers here on EdSurge 
and um, maybe we can share a few stories back with you guys too. I'll send them your way. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, BT. You've been listening to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. This episode was edited and produced by me, Mary Jomata, with advertisements read by Alice Meyerhoff, and Betsy Corcoran conducted the interview. Got comments on our podcast? Well, let us know by sending us an email at feedback at edsurge.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave a rating or tell a friend or colleague. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.